which I'm Leonard Lopate. Neil Richards opens his new book, Why Privacy Matters, by stating, quote, We live in a society that constantly generates vast quantities of human information, information about you, me, and everyone we know. This information is in turn tracked, screened, and sorted by corporations and governments and shared exponentially to others. And then he goes on to look into what privacy is, why it matters, and how we can protect ourselves in an age when so many people believe the concept is dead. Neil Richards is one of the world's leading experts in privacy law, information law, and freedom of expression. He holds the Koch Distinguished Professorship at Washington University School of Law, where he co-directs the Cordell Institute for Policy and Medicine and Law. His book is published by Oxford University Press, and it brings him to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Didn't Mark Zuckerberg once say the age of privacy is over? He did. Mark Zuckerberg said a lot of things over the years that have proven to be uh, slightly inaccurate, to say the least. But he uh, he declared that the age of privacy is over uh, maybe about 10 years ago, at a time, of course, when he was making one of the world's great fortunes, um, profiting off the, the value that our, our human information provides. Well, he was talking about how the digital world and the Internet play a role in uh eliminating our privacy? Well, I, I think that was the argument that he was making. I mean, I, I think it's anyone who's who's been around for the last 25 years, I think it will have recognized that certainly more information about, about you and me and everybody else is getting collected um, by our digital devices. And in fact, a lot of that information has become, for better or for worse, and often for better, necessary to live our, our digital lives. But I think it's one thing to say that uh, more information is being collected about people, and quite another to say there is no privacy anymore for any reason, for any purposes, uh, and it's just over. I think that's that's misleading. It's false. And, and as I explained in the book, it's dangerous. Well, I want to give a list of some of the things that we're discussing. Ad networks monitor our web surfing to send us more relevant ads. The NSA screens our communications for signs of radicalism. Schools track students' emails to stop school shootings. There are cameras on most street corners and traffic lights. There are black box data recorders in cars and data boxes of human information are assembled for purposes of training artificial intelligence programs designed to predict everything from traffic patterns to the location of undocumented migrants. I, I, I wonder if I've left anything out. Uh, some of those things are good, but some of them sound rather scary and creepy. I, I, I definitely, and, and th those those of course are are, are examples that I that, that I, I give in the book. Now I think it's it's certainly true that that all of those things are happening, and and many of the, we can talk about creepiness perhaps in a, in a little bit. Well, you talk um, about the creepy factor in your book. Oh, absolutely. You want to talk about that? Absolutely, right. So we we people tend to think. Uh, when they're confronted with these new uses of, of, of technology, all of the ones you just listed and more besides, that that this is creepy. And I think that's a natural reaction. Um, anytime we, we are confronted with a new uh, potentially threatening activity, um, it's unsettling, it's unnerving, and, and, and we think it's creepy. But I think even though we often talk about new privacy threats being creepy, I think that's a really dangerous way to to try and diagnose privacy problems. And that's the case for, for a couple of reasons. First, uh, to think about things 
as creepiness. Creepiness is, first of all, over-inclusive, right? There are, there are lots of things that, that turn out to be, that we think of as creepy that turn out to be totally fine. So, you know, I, I think I, in the book, I talk about Facebook's newsfeed uh, algorithm, right? That pushes what your friends are doing to you. People were, were totally creeped out by that, but actually uh, I have a lot of negative things to say about Facebook today and in the book, but I think that's actually a thing they did that was, that was pretty cool. Um, more importantly, when we focus on things that creep us out, we find out that it's under-inclusive. There, there, there are lots of things, lots of really threatening, uh, menacing things that we never learn about that are happening with respect to our information. So, so secret scoring by by employers, um, uh, no fly lists or or, or uh, suspicion lists um, that we may be on, but we ne- we we never um, physically encounter the, the consequences. We may just get denied for that job or that loan. Um, things that we don't identify as creepy, we don't feel creepiness, can still come out to hurt us. And, and more fundamentally, creepiness is problematic because it's malleable. Um, privacy and creepiness, uh, privacy norms and sensibilities are a function of, of social norms and social practices. They change across societies. They change across time and they can be influenced. And one of the things that I think we mentioned Zuckerberg a while ago, Google and other companies have been have been really good at um, over the last 25 years is is nudging, influencing, shaping those those privacy practices, those expectations for their own financial benefit. You say it's up for grabs, uh, that the fight for privacy is a fight for power that will determine what our future will look like and whether it will remain fair and free. Uh, And uh, the widespread belief in that privacy is dying is what motivated you to write the book, which you say you began thinking about during an Uber ride? I did. I was. Uh, I published another book about five or six years ago, and I was in a. I was in an Uber in Silicon Valley, going from my hotel to, to give a book talk at, at Stanford, and um, I had this conversation with the Uber driver uh, where she asked me why I was going to Stanford. I said, I'm a professor. I've just published a book. I'm going to be giving a talk. She's like, oh, what kind of professor are you? And I said, I'm, I'm a law professor. And, and then I sort of knew what was going to happen. She said, well, what kind of law do you do? And I said, I said, privacy law. And then she said, there was sort of this sort of sad noise made, sort of like a sigh and a, or, or, or a, a moan. Uh, it, it certainly wasn't a happy noise. She goes, ah, oh, you know, privacy's dead, isn't it? Um, and, and then for the next seven minutes, I subjected this poor woman um, to, to a bit of a rant, um, which, which uh, after I had sort of got it out and mercifully short because the, the law school was close to my hotel. Um, but then uh, I realized, you know, this is a conversation that I'm having all the time. Um, and it probably would make sense to write it down in a way that is clear and hopefully useful to people. And so the, the basic argument of the book is that privacy isn't dead. Uh, the, the rules that govern how, how that information is used once it is collected are, are very much up for grabs. And because privacy is about power, because our information confers power over us. That's why advertisers track us online. That's why governments want to want to find out if we're going to break the law or not. It's 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 why parents watch their kids with the babies with video monitors, um, and later you know using Find My Friends on their iPhones because they want to they want to influence their behavior. Um, and and power is not, neither good nor bad, but power is really important. And because our information confers that power 
social power, economic power, power over how we vote, what we believe. Um, it's essential, I believe, for us to get a better handle on on the rules that currently govern our information and and what new rules we're undoubtedly going to need um, in in the the near and immediate future. You're saying to some degree it's a mixed blessing. Uh, for example, Baltimore has installed surveillance microphones on city buses and authorized spy planes to fly over the city to take high-resolution video of everything on the ground as a way of preventing crime. Uh, is, and, uh, of course, we have all of those people who um, have shot videos, bystanders who shot videos for all sorts of things that we wouldn't have known about, like how George Floyd and Ahmad Arbery died. Absolutely. Absolutely. The argument that I'm trying to make in the book is that reports of privacy's death have been greatly exaggerated. And to make the, the continued case for the importance of privacy in a world that sometimes, often self-servingly, um, we're told that it's gone away. Um, n- nobody wants absolute privacy, right? There are a- undoubtedly times in the past, in the present, in the future, when there can be, in a sense, too much privacy. Hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to, to, I talk about that in the book, I'm happy to talk about it today. But the the point that I wanna, that I wanna really stress is that it's one thing to say, sometimes we can have too much privacy and quite another to say there is no privacy anymore and that's a good thing and that that's the claim that i'm taking on um and i think that claim the idea that privacy is dead is not only false but self-servingly and dangerously false and then privacy protected people who did bad things oh definitely definitely um and i think that's that's one of the interesting things about privacy. I, I gave a talk at Facebook um, seven or eight years ago. And the, this is at the time when Mark Zuckerberg is sort of on his soapbox and talking about oh, privacy. It's just it's outdated. The, the key is to make the world more open and connected. Um, you know, the first thing I, they made me do before I entered the building was to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, right? they, they understand the, the importance of privacy. The NSA fought tooth and nail um, again, for its own privacy. Um, about its privacy invasions. Um, and, and absolutely, uh, privacy can shield political corruption. Um, it can shield domestic abuse. Um, but privacy can, can also do so much more. It can, it can help us figure out who we are as people. It can, it, it's a necessary safeguard for preserving our, and safeguarding our democracy. Um, and it's it's essential to to build the kind of consumer protection rules that I think uh, we need to have to protect our particularly at this at this holiday season of shopping um, to, to to protect us and our data and and our our finances from 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 hackers from manipulation. Um, so right, so so privacy in a sense is like any other tool, right? Uh, kitchen knives uh, are, are essential to to our lives. Um, but you can also use a kitchen knife to commit murder. Um, but, but that doesn't mean we should, we should get rid of kitchen knives. And I think privacy is like that. It's, it's a powerful tool and it needs to be, it needs to be shaped and it needs to be constrained. Um, but it certainly doesn't need to be abandoned. Well, Mark Zuckerberg must have felt that his privacy was being invaded when a, a former employee testified before Congress about some of, of the, uh, the things that... Meta, now called Meta, does. 
<laughs> yeah, the, the the truth can hurt sometimes. There's a certain uh, irony to that. Um, let, let me say two two things about that. Right, one, one is that I don't know anybody, and I know I know dozens, if not hundreds, of of, of privacy lawyers and privacy experts. I don't know anybody that thinks that privacy should be absolute. Um, just that m- most of us believe that privacy is is fundamentally important. And, and and the second thing about that, right, the the allegations that Francis Haugen's made um, mm-hmm. that that Facebook and its subsidiary Instagram were recklessly ignoring data, um, that Instagram was 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 causing mental health problems uh, and worsening at mental health problems among among teenagers. Um, that shows the power of information that that really shows what's at stake here. Um, the reason Instagram was so damaging was because its algorithm was using data that it knew from its customers, from its human customers, these, these teenagers, um, about what would really get them engaged, not, not happy, not sad necessarily, but what would keep them watching what would keep them looking at Instagram, keep them scrolling? Um, because, of course, when you scroll, you scroll past ads. And when you scroll past ads, they get paid. And the more you scroll, the more money they make. Because Facebook was using the personal data of its customers to, as they would put it, to optimize the algorithm for engagement. Um, it really shows that, that unconstrained use of our human information um, in, in the hands of, of companies like this that, that don't really care about our mental health, that just care about how much money they make, is a problem. It's a, it's a powerful, powerful problem. And it's the kind of thing that we should, as members of Congress of both parties have been doing in the wake of the Haugen's revelations, we should think about some, some regulations to, to protect people. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Neil Richards, whose latest book is Why Privacy Matters from Oxford University Press. Well, some of the, the things that uh, have happened in recent years do confuse me a bit. For example, I'm often asked by Google or some other internet facility whether uh, they can use my location. Why would they want that information? That's a great question. I would, I think when we receive location requests, we want to ask that question, right? Why do they want that? Now, sometimes- And I always say, don't allow. Am I making a big mistake? <laughs> I, w- I would say unless you're using Google Maps, you're not making a big mistake. So obviously, there are certain kinds of applications here that need to know our location for them to work. And the, the clearest example of that is, is mapping software. Um, so if, if, if you want to um, you know, use Google Maps or Apple Maps to, to go from um, your, your home to a new restaurant, um, not only should you let them use that, your sure. location to, uh, to, to give you those directions? The software doesn't work without it for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. But, but there's a difference between using location data or any kind of data to help the customer directly um, and most of the ways that location data is, is used. So, so for example, um, most of the reason they want the data on, on the search engine um, is to 
uh, better enable advertising. So if they know where you are, um, they can send you an ad to uh, maybe a hamburger place or, mm-hmm. or a deli that is that that is that is on your way. Which I really don't um, appreciate. You say you do or you don't? No, I would prefer okay. not to receive those ads. So some people say they, they, they like to get coupons, but of course mm. it, it's all about control, right? It's all about influencing your buying behavior and all about sort of getting you to dance to the tune that they're paying advertiser clients want them to do. Um, so in general, it's, it's, and I'm actually pleased that, that companies have started under heavy pressure from privacy advocates have started offering these, these options, but, but location data as the Supreme court has recognized is really, really sensitive. There was a, there was a story a few years ago where a, uh, a secret base um, in, uh, in Afghanistan, a secret U S army base or U S military base was, was revealed to the world because um, the, the members of the armed forces were using Strava, the, the fitness app, to track their runs, <laughs> uh, and and the settings were default public. And so, um, if you know where someone starts their run every day, and you know where they end their run every day, you have a pretty good idea where they are. So there was there was this, there was this weird uh, bubble of activity in in I think in Kandahar province in like remote Afghanistan, um, and it was it was all members of special forces keeping fit. And so th- this shows that that this is not just an innocuous level of information that um, we just need it to help to help serve you better. Um, uh, the information is 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 primarily used for the for the benefit of the company uh, because there are very few legal rules restricting it its use for that in the United States, and it can often have have dangerous consequences. And, and even if even if we we don't work in secret overseas bases, um, there's opportunities for uh, for for stalking or for commercial manipulation or, or other kinds of other kinds of harm. Because we don't always know who's listening. We don't. We don't. And uh, we're being normalized to to accept these uh, these listening devices in our lives. Right. That, uh, you know, most most iPhones and Android phones these days do have um, voice recognition. Um, uh, but it's it's not just that, right? That increasingly we're, we're getting these voice recognition devices in our lives that we didn't necessarily ask for. Um, if you check into a lot of hotels now, there'll be an Amazon Echo, um, an Alexa, just sitting there um, automatically on with, with a with a microphone that is. That is listening, and and you know Microsoft does. Sorry, uh, Amazon does uh, protect that data reasonably well, um, not perfectly, but 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 reasonably well. But but there was a case a couple of years ago where a uh, the, the government sought the recordings from inside someone's homes um, for for a murder investigation. And so let me be clear about what I'm saying: is it it's not that the government shouldn't be able to access this data when it needs it. Um, but we're being normalized um, because these are the products that are available. Um, this is the infrastructure that's just being added to things like hotel rooms and buses and airports um, to and, think and this is okay w- w- without get, a conversation. Go on. Getting back to the creepy thing, uh, sometimes when there's a, a, a an Alexa in a room and uh, the conversation goes something like, well, you know, John Coltrane's uh, A Love Supreme, and suddenly the thing comes on, even though you're just having a conversation. You didn't ask Alexa to play it, but it gives you the feeling that you're being 
listen, everything you say is being listened to. Yeah, I feel bad for people who live with people called Alexa. Um, <laughs> we, we had one at the house for for a while. Um, my, my wife was was she, she she's she's the privacy zealots at our house. Um, she was outraged that I brought this thing home, and I said, "Yeah, I, I just need to know how these things work because I because you know because I write about them." Um, and uh, I was I was gonna. She asked me something about my daughter. I said, "Oh, you know, I'll I'll ask her." Um, and you know, there, Alexa came on and and, and listening. Um, but of course, right. Th this is the thing about creepiness that we only notice the times when it comes on. We don't notice the times that it is always uh, secretly listening. Mm. Um, and I think w w what I'm saying is not to ban voice-activated devices, um, but what I do think is we should have a conversation about what they're good for and what they're not good for and for whose interests they serve. And if they serve customer interests, the way location data helps Apple Maps do its job or the GPS in your car do its job, um, that's one thing. Um, but this open season on, on, on data collection, I think is, is not just problematic um, to our identities, to, to our uh, lives as consumers. Um, it, it can actually be really threatening to our democracy as well. Well, I used to have a voice-activated television remote, which I appreciated because uh, instead of having to search around, I could just simply say uh, Mets game and the, and the game would come on. On the other hand, I've heard that those voice-activated television remotes can be an, a problem and, and invade our privacy, or as you might well, have I, said when you were younger, privacy. <laughs> that's right. Um, you know, I think... We, this is why power is the way to think about privacy or privacy rather than creepiness. I think we should ask whose interests are being served. What are my vulnerabilities here? Um, I think voice activated remotes can be really useful, um, you know, particularly for, for people who, who have disabilities. Um, what I worry about is this. Um, I can remember years ago um, when you bought a television this is before flat screen TVs. Uh, they would often advertise that they came with a wireless remote. Um, do you remember that? Mm -hmm. the, um, and I guess before that, and I'm too young to remember, I assume the first TV remotes had wires on them. Um, that would be, you know, the, the wire would come from the TV to the sofa or the, or the chair. And so the time came you couldn't buy a TV without a remote. And then the time came you couldn't buy a TV without a wireless remote. And now TVs barely have buttons. Um, and you have to use the remote. Mm -hmm. So if your remote breaks, you're, you're really in trouble. Yes. But but what I worry that we're going to go to voice activated televisions, and so but and not by choice and and not with options and, and legal protections, but just by default, the way we have gone to TVs with with uh, you know flat screens and and wireless remotes, and we're not going to have the conversation about who's being really benefited here because that's all companies are going to sell. And we're not going to have the legal regime to protect us, to make sure that that information is used for our benefit, um, to, to, to actually improve our, our entertainment experience um, rather than uh, for, for corporate purposes to make more money to, ad, to advertisers um, and with risks that it could, be, it could be given to the government. You say that uh, the biggest threats to our privacy now and into the future that you see uh, all share one very important thing in common. Government and corporate entities seek to collect and use human information to shape our 
to shape our behavior in ways that serve their interests. Yeah, th this is more about more about power, right? That um, this is the reason we have CCTV cameras um, that that pop up um, to make sure people don't shoplift, to make sure people don't don't break the law, and and, and that can be a good thing, undeniably. Um, but the, the important point is data is usually collected with a purpose and that purpose is usually a purpose that serves the person who's doing the collecting um when we when we live in a world in which everything or or seemingly everything is collected we start to to act like we're be, we start to have the awareness that we're being watched all the time and we start to act in ways i think that are uh less authentic to the, to the kind of people we say we want to be, to, 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 to be, to read fearlessly, to believe what we really believe, to, um, to define our lives our own way. Um, but, but when everything is being, when everyone is being watched, particularly, you know, I'm, I'm concerned here about, about adolescents um, who, who maybe, who like all adolescents are, you know, struggling with their identities about figuring out who they are. Um, uh, who, who may want to, who might want to read about, uh, you know, d different kinds of, uh, sexual orientation or gender expression or evangelical Christianity or, or whatever it is that they, that they, they want to investigate on their own. Um, when we're, there's pretty good empirical evidence that when we're watched, um, we, we, bring our activity in line with social norms. Um, which so when, so when I'm researching a topic for one of my shows, to some degree, I'm opening up uh, Pandora's box? Well, you know, it depends what, what your topic is, right? That if, if, if you were doing a show on... Uh, on privacy. Let's, let's say privacy or, or, or on child pornography, mm -hmm. um, you probably would be more careful in, in what you would search for uh, because you wouldn't want it to be misconstrued. Um, th there was a study after the Snowden revelations um, that found that people searched for words on Google differently. So, so they searched less for things like uh, bin Laden and Al Qaeda and dirty bomb and the, you know, the floor plans of LAX airport. Um, and maybe, maybe that's okay. Maybe we can live with that, but they also searched less for things like divorce lawyer, eating disorder, um, uh, psychologist, right. In, in other words, they conformed to social expectations and, and where that was, you know, the social expectation of don't be a terrorist. Fine. I think we can, we can all live with that, but, they also conform to the social expectations of, you know, don't have mental illness um, mm. and, and, and don't be sick. Uh, and, and it prevented people that, that this sort of socially aware reticence prevented people from uh, from helping themselves. And I, and I, and that, that's the problem. You know, I, I mentioned before that, that I worry about those, those kids in middle school um, uh, trying to figure out who they are. But, but actually, when we're watched all the time, everything is like middle school. And there's this, this tyranny of the social um, that, that, that in inclines people to, to not be their true selves. And I think, I think it's particularly true for, for people who are introverts rather than those who are extroverts. And I think it's particularly true for people who have, uh, you know, non-normative or, or non-mainstream identities, pe people who have um, 
uh, vulnerabilities, people who who are or feel different from from the sort of socially constructed normal, um, and and that worries me because we we say we're a society that is committed to individualism and eccentricity and and weirdness, um, and if we're all watched all the time, I I think that could be stultifying. Aren't some um, algorithms and, think- and artificial intelligence systems biased? Well, that's a separate problem. Um, you well, know, but it goes along the lines of what you've been discussing, no? Yeah, yeah. The, the there there is bias built into AI systems and algorithms because mm. algorithms. First of all, algorithms and AI systems are human creations, just like just like cars and pencils, right? They're tools that built by people. They're not magic. They're stuff people have made, and everything that people make is biased by the. The people who created it, right? That we, uh, this is something that the disability community has talked about at length for for quite a long time. That um, designers without disabilities um, often ignore the fact that they're designing doors and 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 cars and computers um, for for a whole range of people, and it's taken a long time to to try and to, to work on eradicating that bias. Also, AI is often is so the the technologists say it's trained on data, right? That it, you you feed a bunch of data to an AI and it draws patterns from that. Well, if the data is biased, if there's a skew, and and really all data is biased because databases are themselves things built by human beings like cars and computers and pencils. Um, then there's bias there. And so, so we see this in uh, hiring algorithms that, um, that, that recognize uh, white sounding names as more employable mm-hmm. than, than, you know, colloquially put black sounding names. Um, they, they, uh, when they're fed facial, when facial recognition technology is is, is read, is, is fed a whole bunch of white faces. Um, it's particularly bad uh, at at accurately identifying uh, faces that 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 depart from that sort of baseline in, in the database. And so, so what does this mean in practice? It means that, and this is again sort of a, a not creepy because we don't know that it's happening. Um, it means that structural bias in employment gets to continue. It means that when when police do use facial recognition, um, and they shouldn't, but but they do, when they do use facial recognition to to identify suspects, there's a lot more false positives, which means a lot more mm. um, potentially fatal encounters between armed police um, and and in this example, um, innocent people. Well, Clearview, completely innocent people. Clearview artificial intelligence is created is uh, uh, scraping human photos with attached names off of websites and social media profiles so that they can sell their facial recognition tools to law enforcement and ICE to identify people on the street, whether they want them for questioning or because they suspect they might be undocumented or because they want to intimidate protesters. Oh, Clearview, yeah. So, so this is a company that. Um, uh, was founded by a guy who sort of thrashed around for a while trying to find some app in 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 this in Silicon Valley that would that would have some traction and and what they they have is they basically they they train their their AI on the open web mm. on on Facebook and on Facebook profiles and Twitter profiles and, and company and school web pages um, to identify your face and your name and, and for your listeners, their face and their name, if, if that's, if that's there, even if it's something put up by their employer, 
um, or, or, or their school. And they sell this to law enforcement. And it's, it, you know, it's been used to um, as part of the Trump administration's raids on um, undocumented people. It's it's used to uh, to threaten and menace protesters. Uh, this is really, really dangerous technology. And what's worse is they've they, they, they've hired, uh, you know, distinguished First Amendment lawyers to argue not just is this totally OK, um, this this truly Orwellian technology, um, but that their right to build it is fully protected by the First Amendment, as if as if the idea that um, this this tool of potentially perfect oppression is is just as important to our democracy and to to free expression as a as an editorial on the the the, the front page of the New York Times or um, or you know you, your opinions um, as a as a as a as a radio journalist um, on matters of public concern it's 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 deeply deeply wrong um, which is why they're they're getting sued. Um, and they've actually in, in Europe, uh, they've been they've been fined fairly extensively for for this reckless and dangerous and to, to, to my mind, democracy threatening tool that they've that they've built in pursuit of their profits. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Before I get back to my conversation with Neil Richards, I'm uh, pleased to let uh, our listeners know that anyone who signs up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a one-time contribution of $75 or more will receive a free copy of the book that we are discussing on today's show, Why Privacy Matters. But please allow six to eight weeks for delivery, and you can participate in this offer by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 during today's show. Again, that's give to WBAI.org online or on the phone, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. And don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And thank you very much. And a reminder that the book is published by Oxford University Press. Uh, you were talking about the First Amendment. What about the Fourth Amendment? Doesn't that guarantee our privacy? Well, in in theory, uh, but the, the devil is in the details, isn't it? Um, the, the the Fourth Amendment, um, does, the text of the Fourth Amendment doesn't talk explicitly about privacy. Um, it, it talks about the, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects um, against unreasonable searches and seizures. But this, as, as I'm sure you know, the Supreme Court since the 1960s, um, in, in the Katz case, has has ruled that the Fourth Amendment uh, should be understood as protecting a reasonable expectation of privacy and, and the searches by the government that violate a reasonable expectation of privacy um, are, uh, are, are, are unlawful. Um, 
the Fourth Amendment, uh, that notion of the Fourth Amendment was was interpreted at a time of phone booths and, uh, you know, Al Capone style wiretaps. Um, and uh, courts have struggled to apply the Fourth Amendment to, to a digital age. For, for a long time, the government took the position that because your email was shared with your ISP, it somehow lost an expectation of privacy and that the police didn't have to get a warrant before before they accessed it. Um, the, the current Supreme Court, though, over the last 15 years has actually been fairly uh, strong um, in, in protecting our privacy against uh, uh government searches and seizures in our digital devices that they've held that they have to get a warrant before they can install a GPS monitor on your car. They have to get a warrant before they can um, unlock your cell phone. They have to get a warrant um, before they can obtain all the location information that your phone is sharing right now with your phone company in order to, to route the calls. And so there's, there's still a lot of work to be done on that front, but actually with respect to fourth amendment privacy, um, I'm, I'm much more optimistic uh, than I am with respect to, to commercial privacy, um, except in one case, um, which is a lot of information that the police can get about you. They could just buy or, or solicit uh, from from companies and there's there's there are insufficient legal rules hmm. prohibiting that sort of public private partnership on uh the sharing of information because and it's already so, available so well it's it's already collected mm -hmm. by the company um and we have insufficient legal rules placed upon companies um that govern what they can do with the data um and so very often they can they can give or or they can sell that data to to law enforcement. And so uh, if we have a world in which the police can just buy that which the Constitution forbids them from getting um, uh, directly, then I think we have a we have a serious problem, which is why even if a, a lot of people um, I, I've heard over the years have said to me, you know, I, I care about privacy, but I'm much more concerned about uh, the government than I am about Target. Um, or Walmart, and so I think that's where we should we should uh, focus our efforts. But but even if that's all you care about, even if all you care about, or primarily care about, is privacy against the state, um, then you should care about the data about you that is being collected um, by by private corporations, because the the legal rules governing it in the United States are are outdated, minimal, um, and for, for at least for these kinds of purposes, largely ineffective. Hasn't there been a significant regulatory response to protect privacy around the world uh, for, and in the United States? Are these new privacy laws, such as the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, and the, the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, effective? That's a great question. Um, I think I, I want to talk less about privacy acronyms because I, I know this is supposed to be an entertaining radio show. And well, we, just, we, we could talk. I could talk about that ad nauseum. But let, let me say the United States is the only advanced economy in the world. Not even the only democracy. China's got one. The United States is the only advanced economy in the world without a comprehensive national level privacy law. And that's a huge problem. Europe has the GDPR and the GDPR does a lot of things really well. The California law, um, I think, is, is really well-meaning, um, but it tries to put us in control of our data. Um, 
and and tries to give us more more levers and switches and knobs and pulleys um, with which to 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 manage the data that that is that is collected about us. And so I think that model is, even though the law is well-meaning, the CCPA, the California law alone, um, or even if every state passed one like it, is not going to be enough. I, I think uh, it just makes it incrementally harder for companies to do what they want with the data. There's there's no substantive restrictions placed upon upon what they can do um, if they can persuade us um, to to allow it to, to, to be processed or, or if we don't know that it's being processed and so we fail to object. You say you worry about the integrity of our elections and other Democrat, democratic processes as we enter the next phase of the information age. What's concerning you? Yeah, I, I went to a, I went, to, I spoke at a conference in D.C. about eight or nine years ago, um, and uh, this was when Obama was in office, um, and uh, the crowd in the room were, were largely Democrat or progressive leading. And the the chief data scientist of the Obama campaign spoke at the conference, and he talked about how he'd used publicly available data to to get out the vote, um, and. And my friend I was with looked at me and he said, you know, I, he said, I voted for Obama, but this horrifies me because this might mean that, you know, the power of this data to, to get people out or to suppress votes potentially um, might turn our elections not just into a battle of money, um, but a battle of data science when, when in theory, at least, there's supposed to be a battle of ideas and a battle of visions and a battle of policies. And so in the 2016 presidential election, um, the, the Trump campaign, I don't think they were at this conference listening to my friend, but they got the message. Um, they contracted with this with an English company called Cambridge Analytica, um, which was a psychological warfare company. And, and that, that company um, basically exfiltrated data from, from Facebook on the back of a, quote, fun personality test. And they used it to build detailed psychographic profiles of almost 100 million Americans and then use that to target ads to them. And this is, mm. this is really important because if I know things about you, if I know that you are an introvert, if I know that you are, uh, you are afraid of new experiences, um, I can craft political ads to you. We are losing our country. Immigrants are coming um, that are more likely to be effective, not because they're good arguments, but because they are precisely targeted to the psychological vulnerabilities that the data has revealed about you. And was it and, something and similar done in Britain with the Brexit referendum? It's the same company. The, they, um, Cambridge Analytica was, was based in London, um, and they used techniques of information warfare, of psychological information warfare um, against the electorates of the United Kingdom, my, my home country, and, um, and, and the United States, our country. Um, and, and this is why Cambridge Analytica uh, is out of business. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, no one is in prison for this information war attack on, on, on our democracy that, that incidentally may well have been the difference in the very, very close Brexit referendum and, and, and may have been part, certainly was, was part of the, um, uh, it was certainly may have contributed to the, to the, to the election of, of, of Trump. Um, you know, and, and when we see that polls are wrong 
and that uh, voting patterns are actually um, uh, skewed from from what the experts suspect. Maybe the experts are wrong, but maybe something else is going on as well. And and what you can do with this data is you don't need to persuade someone to vote for your candidate. All you need to do, and this happened a lot in 2016, all you need to do is to persuade someone that their candidate is kind of a loser mm-hmm. or is disreputable. And so they just stay home. And, you know, it's if, I get if you're those trying to emails all the time or, or messages all the time. Yeah. On Facebook. But but and we could to some extent we can tune those out. Um, but the more the polling company knows about us, the more the polling company knows what our what our individual hot button issues are, the more we can be manipulated. Um, and and the, the more. I think we should worry um, that that our political process might just become a battle of data scientists rather than rather than a battle of ideas. I mean, I'm not naive about you know the the importance of organization and and resources and money and and um, you know I, I don't have a Pollyanna-ish view of of, of elections, um, but I think we can still struggle to try and in spite of all the problems democratic elections have to try and make them about ideas and policies and character um, and, and much less about who's got the best algorithm, particularly where our elections increasingly have been very, very close, that these technologies could be, could be the margin of victory. Um, and, and really, if we are being faithful to basic principles of, of why we have democracies, they shouldn't be. And you're saying that other countries are dealing with the issue better than the United States? Or some countries, anyway. With respect to I elections, I always assume Scandinavian countries are doing well. <laughs> Maybe um, you know, with respect to elections, um, I think this is a relatively new threat. Um, I, I will say that uh, European countries um, deal with the problem of money in politics better than the United States does, um, because they don't have the line of Supreme Court cases that, that bluntly equate money as as speech um so we have an equality of dollars rather than a quality of humans when it comes to mm-hmm. uh electoral expression i i do think that the european approach to the, the gdpr where they they have um you know soup to nuts requirements on processing data ethically and not using data collected for one purpose for another purpose um they i think do better than we do um, but then there's also South Korea, uh, which, as I talk about in the book, a few years ago, their uh, their version of the of the NSA, basically their their, their secret police, um, had to basically apologize for intervening in the election, um, you know, using using data um, to try and get the candidate that they thought would either serve their interests slash be better for South Korea um, elected, and that candidate did in fact win. We don't have a lot of time left, but uh, I wonder, uh, hasn't it often been suggested that the best way to protect privacy is to put individuals in control of their data so they can make informed choices about 
their privacy. What's the problem with that as far as you? Yeah, think? yeah. Th- th- this is this is uh, sort of Mark Zuckerberg's fallback position, right? Instead of privacy is dead, they just want to put us in control. Well, th- there's only f- there's there's four problems with control. Um, the first is that control is overwhelming, right? The idea is we're just going to give people these privacy settings and dashboards and buttons, and they're going to be fully in control. Well, we can't remember all of our passwords much less all of our privacy settings for all of those services we can't remember our passwords for. That that while it sounds great in principle, um, in practice, uh, you know, nobody's got time for that. Um, and, and second, you know, control, it's not just overwhelming, it's an illusion. They only, we only get the choices in the privacy dashboards that they choose to give us. So I'd like a choice that says, stop surveilling me on the internet and using it to serve me ads. Just serve me whatever ads people who look at this website typically get. We, we never get given that choice. So control is illusory there. Third, control completes this trap of creepiness that, that I talked about before. Um, you know, we, we get these options and it just becomes so overwhelming um, that we, what do we do? We, we don't do anything. We just take the options that are given. Like when that, when that, do you want to have cookies? Yes. Or go further into the, 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 the decision tree. We all just, we just want to read the article, right? We don't, we don't want to click and spend 15 minutes adjusting privacy settings that we barely understand for that one particular website. Well, I'm often and so, reluctant to use my credit card on a website. Uh, I never know when it's, well, in some cases you have no choice, but sometimes I, I feel a bit queasy. Yeah, well, you, you only get the choices that they that they give you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if they require your credit card, or, or you know, ultimately we just give in. Because we don't go on the internet to adjust our privacy settings. We, we use these technologies to try and use them to, to make our lives better and more and more convenient and to get stuff done because we're already feeling so overwhelmed and so busy. And so what do we do is we just take the settings the companies give us. But, and this is key, because they said, we've given you the choice of control, even though that control was an illusion, even though that control was overwhelming, we, even though we ultimately just take the default settings they gave us, not only do we do what they want to do in the aggregate, we feel guilty about it because we feel, well, we had this chance to do this work, mm. but we didn't actually do it. So ultimately, so I think control is one of these things. It's really well-meaning, um, but ultimately control is a trap. Um, and we should we should reject it in favor of something else. And I think that something else could be placing substantive limits on what companies can do with data. Um, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of years is the possibility of, of treating companies the way data companies the way we treat doctors and lawyers and imposing a, a duty of loyalty on them so that they will only use our data in our best interests. We do welcome some invasions of our privacy, like metal detectors at airports or at entrances uh, to professional sports events and public schools, and and the requirement that we show proof of vaccinations before we can eat in a restaurant. Yeah, of course, in in all of those cases, I think most of us would, would rather live in a world without COVID and a world without, without mass shootings. Um, Those are, those are targeted um, interventions um, that that I think are done in, in pursuit of public safety. And I think, and I think that's okay. Um, But it wouldn't be acceptable to, um, to, to require people to disclose a list of every, every website they've visited over the last 15 years and everywhere they've gone 
in order to eat in a restaurant or or attend a Yankees game. Mike, great thanks to you for talking with us today. I've been speaking with Neil Richards, who is one of the world's leading experts in privacy, law, information, law, and freedom of expression. Uh, is it the Koch or Coke Distinguished <laughs> Professorship at Washington it, University? It, it, it is the Coke Distinguished Coke. Professorship, but I, but I do have to say it's not those Cokes. Um, it's it's named after a wonderful family uh, from St. Louis who are graduates of our great university, Washington University, and who who built homes and then they built apartment built apartment buildings and now they built Ferris wheels. They're lovely people. The book is published by Oxford University Press. Thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to send me your comments about a program or just to say hello, you can uh, email me at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative deep dives into one subject for a full hour that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., I hope you'll go online right now to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 and help keep community radio alive in New York City. We are supported 100% by our listeners. We don't take money from other sources, which allows us, gives us a lot of freedom. On the other hand, it makes us more financially uh, imperiled at times. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, mentioned at the half, anyone who makes a one-time contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Why Privacy Matters, by Neil Richards. Uh, whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up and show your support for Leonard Lopez at Large and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We rely 100% on our listeners' support. So why not make that call right now? at 212-209-2950 or go to give to WBAI right now. And remember, we also have a, a tower fund. We have to pay the rent on our tower. Check that out at WBAI.org or when you call 212-209-2950. We hope that you can join us again for tomorrow's show when gardening expert and regular contributor to the show, Pete Morosky, will be here for his annual winter solstice appearance. And he'll be taking your calls about uh, what to do if you want to continue gardening into the winter. We'll see you then.